0: Welcome to the Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity and Resource Efficiency, and my co-host, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis. If you joined us for our previous episodes, you'll know that we are co-hosting a short series of podcasts that uses informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sectors through the lens of women. We are inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we have invited Aisha Swandi and Jolene Diou to join us today and to discuss what it's like to be a woman working within the circular economy and sustainable waste industry and what are the hot topics that we are addressing in our day-to-day work. Welcome, Aisha and Jolene. Lovely to have you with us. Before we get into our discussion, maybe you would like to tell us a bit more about what you do at the Circulate initiative.
1: Sure. Thanks for that introduction, Claudia, and really great to be here. Julian and I, we are both research analysts at the Circulate Initiative. So we are a nonprofit organization committed to solving the ocean plastic pollution challenge and also advancing an inclusive circular economy across emerging markets. So we do this by delivering key research, building high-impact programs, and driving collective action with industry stakeholders, including businesses, investors, and policymakers.
0: Super. Thank you so much. At the beginning of each of these podcasts, we always talk a bit about how the different people really come into this sector. Could you tell us a bit more about your journey towards waste and circularity?
1: Sure, I think looking back into how I got into this sector will probably point to the point where I was deciding on my university career after junior college. So as I was reflecting on our role as caretakers of the earth, it kind of inspired me to pursue a career related to the environment. In Islam, we have a saying from a prophet that even if the resurrection were established upon one of you, while he has in his hand a sapling, let him plant it. So this saying has been a motivator for me to pursue the Environmental Studies Bachelor Program that is offered in the National University of Singapore, and it continues to be a motivator for me to find meaning in the work that I do. After graduation, I then started my career at GA Circular. So at that time, it was a consulting firm focused on circular economy. I supported projects on material flow analysis for FMCG companies and also on some waste audits. I think the experience at GA Circular really opened my eyes to the waste management landscape in Southeast Asia. Especially the role of informal waste workers and how much they have contributed or continue to contribute to recovery of plastic waste for recycling in this region. Even when GA Circular scaled back operations, I was pregnant and uh, looking for a full time position at that time. Given the timing and the stage of pregnancy that I was at, it wasn't easy, but understandably so. I was given the opportunity to explore a freelance research role with the Circular Initiative, so I took that on and I supported them with doing some initial work on looking. At Thailand's waste management landscape. So, when a team was looking to expand, it was a natural fit for me to join them. And the work that we have embarked on has been really eye opening for me. I think the insights and the tools that we have developed and continue to develop help to bring to fore various perspectives of the stakeholders in the plastics ecosystem and also continue to highlight uh, inclusive and effective solutions. So, stakeholders that come into this sector can make informed decisions when engaging with the other stakeholders.
0: That is really comprehensive. Thanks so much for that. I think one thing um, I'm picking up on is kind of like managing career and family is always difficult. And we just had International Women's Day where we try to celebrate how women work in the business and our advantages and often disadvantages still in the business sector so it's super interesting to hear about you actually experiencing that but then really getting a break and i don't know if you can tell us a bit more about that
1: yeah i think I- at that time when um, GA Cir- Circular Skilled Back Operations and uh, being pregnant, it was a difficult time to secure a full-time position. So when the Circular Initiative approached me with that freelance um, opportunity, it made sense and it gave me the valuable opportunity to kind of balance work and life. So. I think now as a full-time research analyst with them, I'm really appreciative of the leaders at the organisation. They continue to take time to support their employees to achieve harmony between work responsibilities and also life outside of the office. I think they've been very flexible with working arrangements and they've also been understanding whenever I need to step out for a while to tend to my toddler, for example, bringing her to the clinic when she falls ill. So I'm really grateful for the support system that we have here at our organisation.
2: That's no, amazing to hear, isn't it? It's so great because Hadia and I have interviewed women from all different parts of the circular economy, and also from all sorts of different geographies. And I think this is a bit of a trend that we're beginning to identify. That you know, the longer you've been in the sector, the more traditional family work-life balance challenges you might have experienced. But the more we talk to people who are coming into the sector more recently and who are experiencing the sorts of positive journeys that you've been on, I think the more inspiring it's going to be for other young women to see this as a career opportunity. For for themselves. Talking of which, Julian, it would be lovely to hear a little bit about your career pathway and how you ended up in the role you're in today, please.
3: Yeah, thanks Debbie for asking. So first things first, thanks for having me here. It's really great to be here and chatting with you guys. Uh, for me, I've always had an innate interest or maybe more of a concern for the environment. So growing up in Singapore, the use of single-use plastics is very prevalent. And I think I started noticing a disconnect between what we were learning in school where the three hours were often drilled into us and what was actually happening in reality. Upon graduation, when deciding on which domain or industry I wanted to pursue a career in, doing something related to the environment was the first thing that popped into my mind and um, what i was thinking was that this would be a career that would enable me to go beyond being just a consumer of environmental news and finally being able to put my hands to work where i believed i could be part of creating that tangible change yes Aisha and i are actually ex-colleagues i was also at G A circular and that's where i started my career so my first project was on a market study in the philippines where we studied the material flow of plastic packaging in the country And I think it was an excellent introduction to the whole recycled plastic space. So I'm reflecting on what has kept me going. I think plastic pollution is very tangible. We see it all around us and we understand its negative impact. I think when we talk about plastic pollution, one visual that I'm sure is top of mind for everyone here is the one with the turtle with a plastic straw up its nose. While this represents just one part of the plastic pollution problem, What is often overlooked is the various interconnected aspects that must come into play to drive circularity. So while I may have started my career with a more superficial understanding of the whole plastics issues, I have learned so much in the time I've been here and all the different aspects related to plastic circularity. And helping to improve understanding in this space has been what's kept me going.
2: It's so lovely to hear that your impact-led, both of you, have been driven by a passion and a commitment, and you followed that passion and built on it with evidence and science. And you know the work that you're doing, I think, is great in terms of delivering that systemic and tangible change in the plastic sector that you know we've all seen, as you say, the turtle with the straw up its nose. It's a very emotive image. But moving beyond that into the next phase of actually delivering change on a, a global scale, I think, is a really interesting opportunity. And it's great to have you because we want to talk about some of your project work in the next few minutes as well and dig in a little bit to some of what you've been doing in that practical space. Absolutely and I think the attitude and the
0: working relationship was very much like we work within Anthesis so it was a brilliant partnership over a good eight or nine months, it was a long time for the project. And TCI recently published a set of country reports mapping local plastic recycling supply chains in selected cities in India, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And this work was done in in cooperation between the Circulate Initiative and the thesis, as well as uh, local subcontractors who conducted research and analysis for these reports. And I think what struck me was that though many urban areas have municipally managed waste collection, there remains a really high reliance on the informal sector for the collection and aggregation and recycling of plastics and other valuable materials. So the plastic recycling supply chains are all local and unique, and they rely on these informal transactions, which are often driven by the local condition, traditions and cultures, as well as the local and regional infrastructure and markets. So the rationale and purpose of the study was to understand plastic waste supply chains for key polymers, which were in our case PET, LDP, HTP and PP. So really the big for polymers or plastics being used in packaging and a lot of products, look at the ecosystems and key players, as well as the pricing and the economics of recycled plastic, and then develop potential interventions and identify investment opportunities. I think the reliance on the level of informal supply chains in those regions really stood out. I knew it was a, a big part, but that it was often kind of like 90 plus percent recycling coming through informal supply chain was uh, something I didn't know before. Was it the same for you, Aisha? Haven't worked in this sector before?
1: Yeah, I think the kind of research that we did definitely reiterated to me. The significance of these informal waste workers, especially in the waste sheds that we looked at. So here when I say waste sheds, we mean the geographical regions with a common solid waste disposal system or areas designated by the governing institutions as appropriate for developing a common recycling programme. So in nearly all the waste sheds that we looked at, as you mentioned Claudia, I think about 100% of that plastic waste gets recycled, goes through the informal sector and kind of to paint the picture a bit um, in Delhi, India there are around like 200,000 to 500,000 informal waste workers and we found that these informal workers were contributing to the 60% plastic rate in Delhi itself uh, which is much higher compared to that in Mumbai and Chennai which are the other two waste sheds that we looked at in India the waste that they collect then goes on to multiple levels of aggregators before it reaches the formal recycling facilities in that waste shed itself or in the neighbouring waste sheds I think looking at another example of Ho Chi Minh City and Vietnam. There are some semi-formal arrangements there where they have licensed independent waste collectors and they are appointed by the municipal authorities to collect waste From areas difficult to access with vehicles. Even with these um, semi-formal arrangements, it seems that the recyclables are still sold to informal junk shops and aggregators and the craft villages that are quite prevalent in Vietnam itself, which are like collective uh, villages where households collectively uh, do processing and recycling of plastic waste. So, yeah, definitely the level of reliance on informal supply chain for plastic recycling stood out to me throughout this research.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think that also all your examples also show the variety of informal sectors So informal sector is not like informal sector. That's really where the local conditions come in and the aggregations as well, mainly to cover really the credit gap because informal workers have to be paid there and then and maybe several times a day. But really, on the other hand, where the material goes, people are expecting bulk deliveries and then, then our weekly payments or even monthly payments. And really to overcome that, I think we found seven, eight different levels of aggregation before it actually comes to the recycler. So that was quite impactful. And what do you see are the challenges with the reliance on the informal supply chains for plastic recycling?
1: I think we can't deny that this informal sector is indeed very critical in the plastic recycling supply chains especially in this region of Asia they provide the valuable knowledge on the types of plastics that can be recycled and increase the collection rate but as you pointed out Claudia I think with the reliance on the informal supply chain though there are its challenges and uh, maybe I'll share three of those challenges Uh, one of them being these informal waste workers they tend to be marginalised and they are subject to lower welfare standards so for example they may have limited access to annual health checkups, or limited access to uh, personal protective equipment and also insurance. Another challenge is that these informal pre-processors and recyclers, they are not subject to typical environmental and health and safety regulations like the formal counterparts. So the cost of engaging the services may be lower and the formal recyclers can shift some of that cost of cleaning the plastic feedstock to this informal sector but it's at the expense of the environment. And then there's also issues with feedstock reliability. So as you said, the multiple levels of aggregation that recyclers source their plastic from, and then these aggregators getting the plastic waste from various sources with differing prices and differing qualities continue to be challenged with ensuring security of the feedstock supply and this affects the economic viability of kind of setting up new recycling plants and also limits the scale-up of recycling infrastructure in general. But recognising all these issues, I think as we look to scale up plastic recycling, we have to see how we can better leverage this informal sector and their role that they play in the local conditions. The research that we did helps to give us that first-hand view of the plastics value chain in the sheds, gives us an understanding of who these waste workers are, who the collectors are, the aggregators and the recyclers. At the circular initiative we're also looking at undertaking other studies such as looking at the responsible sourcing and also better understanding and supporting this informal sector for plastics recycling.
0: Great, I think that is really important. I think those three points show why people find it really hard to invest often in new plastic infrastructure. And that was probably also one of the big findings, that it's definitely needed. And we know as well as in in Europe and North America that there's a huge lack of infrastructure. And if we want a circular economy and circular circular material flows, we will need those plants to recreate the feedstock we need to have then a product that use recyclable content and really create a circular material flow like we often have for metals and glass, but plastics are still way behind those two materials. So I think that's something there's a lot of work to do, but I think we we made the start and you need to understand it first before you can take it further.
2: I'm interested to understand a little bit more, maybe from you, Jolene, about the role that women play in the informal sector and the specifics in how they can help to enhance the circular economy in in regard to plastics and some of the other research work that you've done that sort of spotlights the importance of the role of women in that informal sector.
3: Yeah, I always look forward to talking about this topic. It's one that's very close to heart. From what we've come across in our work, and also through our conversations with many stakeholders, it's clear that women make up a disproportionate percentage of workers in the informal sector. So one example is in Ho Chi Minh City. It's estimated that women make up more than 95% of the informal waste workers who collect recyclable waste. To understand more about what companies can do to improve the lives of informal waste workers, last year we spoke to a number of India-based portfolio companies of circulate capital, our mission-aligned investment partner. And one of the areas we touched on was also the role of women. Findings from those conversations were really very insightful. So women are typically viewed as the more vulnerable segment, and they're also expected to take on domestic responsibilities with limited access to economic opportunities. The first insight i like to share is around child labour. So one of the companies mentioned that waste-picking is actually a job where child labour often goes hand-in-hand. The female waste workers who have to care for their children, they can't just leave them behind at home and they'll bring them to waste picking sites where their children may just help out. This is something that is definitely not compliant with many supplier contracts where one of the requirements is ensuring that there is no child labour. So to prevent the incidence of child labour and waste picking, one of the companies set up education centres for the children of waste pickers where the informal waste workers can leave their children when they go waste picking. Aside from providing some form of childcare support, this initiative also has a twin advantage of providing continued access to education for the children. And this was especially important during the pandemic, where many classes pivoted online. So many of these children don't have access to the internet, and the education centres provided them a way to continue with their education. Aside from childcare support, I also wanted to share another interesting insight that came through our conversations. So another company mentioned that female waste workers felt empowered by their connection and association with these companies. And aside from this association, there was also a form of financial empowerment. The companies ran some financial literacy workshops for these women. What they said was prior to these workshops, the women may have been dependent on their husbands for money or borrowed for money lenders. But because many of them do not know how to read or write, They were unaware of the huge interest rates involved. Um, These are just some anecdotes from our conversations. From all these insights we gathered, it's very clear that a lot more needs to be done to uplift the informal waste workers. recognising this, the Circular Initiative will be launching a new multi-year responsible sourcing programme to address the policies and practices that need to be implemented in emerging markets with a view towards fair remuneration, ethical labour and human rights for informal waste workers this is very close to our overall mission and goals. And it's something we're really excited to launch in the next
2: month. Thank you. I think that's just a really insightful piece of research that you've just shared with us there. You know, there would be a great deal of surprise, I think, from a lot of our listeners and from a lot of the organisations that are, you know, in this supply chain to hear that there is so much issue with child labour in this Part of the supply chain, and I think that you know the, the fact that you're talking about mechanisms that are being introduced to not only empower those 95% of the female workforce with financial and in, uh, independence, but also to upskill and and educate the next generation of women to give them that empowerment. I mean, that's a, it's a great story and a wonderful fit with this podcast and the series that we're hosting. What I would love to see is perhaps you can come back in another year and talk to us about, you know, how that initiative has continued to roll out. Because I think we tend to focus on the benefits from the environmental perspective of circular economy. And we mustn't forget that the social impacts and the opportunity that it opens up for women and many other people actually in the supply chain, I think are so important. So perhaps you'll come back and tell us in some time uh, from now how that uh, initiative is actually going down. Yeah, I would love that. So I think
0: these are all really interesting initiatives and and don't know pure coincidence I just had a long discussion yesterday with colleagues about what does sustainability actually mean and is sustainability just environmental or is it actually social don't know touches into biodiversity and other issues because as a thesis we are just developing our own impact strategy to enable us to be really impact led in a more strategic way and to see what impact we have on a daily basis, because it's clearly very important for all of us to be in an impactful company and lead in that way. But maybe, I don't know, from the more esoteric and more philosophical side, I shall what do you see can be done to really upscale plastic recycling as during the course of the work we saw a number of enabling policies that were agreed to improve collection aggregation but it's probably some it's some countries are more advanced others are a bit lagging behind but in general then our epr extended producer responsibility seem to be a really big scheme in all of these countries Do you see that improving the informal sector and and recycling in general?
1: I think uh, for interventions that can be done to scale up plastics recycling, there's Definitely a wide range of that, especially when we're taking into account the challenges that each of these waste should face. And there's interventions from developing supportive regulatory and social conditions to financial interventions and technical and digital improvements. So as you've mentioned, Claudia, EPR is one of that policy interventions that we're seeing several countries in the region like India and Vietnam implement and one way EPR we see can help scale up plastic recycling is through optimization of existing infrastructure. So, to give an example of the existing infrastructure in the Asia region, in Greater Jakarta, Indonesia, there's about three thousand waste banks, and these waste banks are facilities unique to Indonesia. They are semi-formal facilities where residents can bring their recyclables to, and in exchange for these recyclables, they have an account through which um they can save and withdraw money from. From our understanding, facilities however they only end up managing 1.5% of the waste sheds total inorganic waste in terms of plastic and paper. So think through EPR there's an opportunity to channel some of the funding to these existing infrastructure, increase their capabilities and ensure they are optimized for recovery of plastics. Uh, whether these policies can improve informal sector conditions. There is work that is being done and continues to be done to ensure that they are appropriately integrated into the EPR systems. I think some of them might include um, defining their roles as part of the EPR systems and providing them with the technical support to develop organisational models appropriate to the local conditions and ensure financial security for them in terms of consistent and sufficient payments. So while we know that EPR can drive demand for more Recycle plastics, we have to continue to ensure that these policies and these interventions recognise the role that this informal sector plays. I think these are just some, I think APR are just one of those interventions that can be considered and definitely any of these interventions cannot be achieved by one particular stakeholder in isolation but through collaboration with multiple organisations within the local plastics recycling supply chains, that's where we'll see more effective plastics recycling.
2: That point around collaboration has come up so many times in our podcast in the past, hasn't it, Claudia, where we're talking about you know, upstream and downstream partnerships and partnerships across different regions, different geographies that are not necessarily what you would consider typical partnerships or typical collaborations in a more linear infrastructure. So it's really interesting to, to hear you say that. Gillian, I would just like to pick up on something with you, the supply chain mapping work that you guys have been doing, that created another step towards a sort of better understanding. But I know that it also highlighted some challenges around transparency in the plastic waste supply chain and the impact of plastic infrastructure development. I wondered if you could give us uh, your view on the level of transparency in relation to pricing particularly.
3: Yeah, so in general, the market is pretty fragmented across South and Southeast Asia. And looking at pricing specifically, there's a great variance in the prices of the materials sold to the next level in the supply chain. We looked at this in greater detail through a study around pricing transparency, where we looked at the prices of recycled plastics at each stage of the value chain, and we also looked at how policy interventions can improve pricing transparency. Through the pricing data we gathered from our interviews, where we interviewed collectors, aggregators, and recyclers, often we see that the prices the aggregators state they purchase material at from the collectors, are lower than what the collectors say they sell it at to the aggregators. So what this actually implies is that there's no uniformity or standards in terms of how price flows are reflected through the value chain.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about that study, Jillian?
3: Yeah, of course, really excited too. So similar to uh, the way shape mapping work, the pricing transparency research was also conducted in India, Indonesia, Thailand and Vietnam. So for the study, through interviews with stakeholders, We identified the prices of the materials traded at each point of the value chains and also their expected profits. The results weren't entirely surprising. We found that the level of pricing transparency was consistently low across the four countries, with recyclers receiving a disproportionate 70-80% to of total profits. And this was the case for all the countries in the study. We also looked at the difference in pricing from a material perspective. And from this perspective, there's also a difference in the level of pricing transparency. For example, PET, which is a common plastic used to make the rigid bottles that many beverages are sold in, has greater transparency because there's proper end markets that have been established. If we compare this to another material like LDPE, which are the flexible plastics commonly used to make plastic bags, the end markets for the recycled LDPE are not so clearly defined. So this pricing data is critical for strategic planning at all levels. And without this data, the stakeholders will set targets that may not be in sync with market realities. As a next step, we also wanted to see how we could improve pricing transparency in the value chain. And to do this, we investigated how policy interventions like EPR or setting a tax on virgin plastics could have an impact on the distribution of profits along the value chain and also on the amounts of material recycled.
0: And that work is still ongoing, isn't it? Um, while we did a lot of the research during the mapping study, we're still analysing and and taking this forward at the moment. And I think we will put um, the sources of the reports in the in the notes as well, so people can look those reports up. And I don't know. I think the pricing study is likely to be published in the summer. Is that still correct?
3: Yeah, we're looking to publish it in the summer. I also just wanted to bring up um, one point. So I think when describing all the pricing transparency aspects, it may be a bit difficult to grasp. So I just wanted to mention also that we are developing a tool that helps with scenario building through modelling these interventions. Using this tool, it will model the corresponding impact on prices, profits and the individual quantities of the four different plastics. So that's something to look out for alongside the reports that we'll be publishing.
2: Thank you. There is so much material in this podcast, and I think we could probably talk to you for uh, another hour at least but I would love to invite you to come back and to uh, give us an update on some of the information and unfortunately for today we're out of time though so thank you both very much for joining us and for sharing your insights both about the region you live in about being um, a woman in our sector and specifically about the research and the work that you've been doing in the plastic supply chain which is so valuable and so current at the moment so we really appreciate the time that you've taken to share your experiences with us and we must invite our listeners to get in touch if there's anything else that they would like to hear from us about or to hear from you about but until then thank you all for listening thank you for your time